Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. First, I'd like to apologize for the delay in getting this episode released. This episode is an interview between myself and Bob Mata. Bob is host of the Defense Diaries podcast, and he's a criminal defense attorney. He was very interested in the Jane Mixer case, and I thought it was worthwhile for the two of us to sit down, talk about the evidence, the potential for contamination, and our own theories in the case. The second half of this episode is basically an off-the-cuff discussion of the Moscow murders. That's the murder of the college students in Moscow, Idaho, that happened in late 2022. And now, on with the show. So, Gary Leiterman, Jane Mixer, John Collins... It's quite a case that we've been talking about. Yes, yes, it is. You got me uh, in a real rabbit hole. Thank you, Nina, for that. I, I really appreciate that. That like I needed another rabbit hole. That one, right? <laughs> that one. It's it's a wild one. It's a wild one. And I, you know, I I don't think Gary Leiterman was necessarily an angel or a saint. I don't think he was necessarily a great guy, but I'm not convinced that he's a killer. Me either. And, and and like, let's look at it. Let's take out the little piece, which I'm sure your listeners are aware of in terms of kind of the history of Gary, you know, and he picked up that kind of nasty, that nasty charge later in his life that I had to do with the, ch- you know, so like if it, remove that, like from your psyche, if you can, you know, because like that clouds are you know, kind of our interpretation of like the data that we're looking at in terms of like, is he, you know, do we think he did it or didn't he do it? You know what I'm saying? Cause it's like, if I pull that out of the mix, sorry for that play on words talking about Jane Mixer, <laughs> but um, if we pull that out of, out of kind of like the, the things that we're looking at in terms of, do we think this guy did it or not? Is he the guy? If I pull that out, and we kind of like, I'm sure we're going to dive into what happened with this DNA. It, it's, it's a tough sell for me, honestly. You know, I, I, I'm with you. I, I, I do not think he's the guy. So you know, maybe that's just my defense attorney thing. I don't know. <laughs> I had a couple of listeners say, well, just because the blood evidence was contaminated doesn't mean the sweat evidence was contaminated. And I thought that might be something that you could speak to. I mean, that's certainly an argument. I mean, that that very well could be the case. However, you know, when you have one lab that is dealing with essentially three pieces of evidence, okay, in terms of the stockings, and then you've got the ruleless blood DNA sample, and then you've got Gary's potential, you know, because basically when he got arrested for that thing that we were talking about, part and parcel of becoming a felon is that you have to submit your DNA. And they were doing that back in the early 2000s as well. So they had those samples. And basically what they were doing with both Rulis and, and Leiterman was that they were at that point putting the profiles together. So they took the samples that they had from both of those people and essentially what happens. And, and, and it's a like typically it's a buccal swab. So it makes even more sense that they're claiming that they found it, it, it like it was biological for certain, but it was, it was either saliva or sweat is as to Gary. Right. Whereas, you know, so that makes more sense in terms of the cross contamination that we're concerned with, but you've got all three of these samples in the lab in and around theoretically on the same day, you know, because yes. we know it was happening in February and March that they were they were doing all these things and this is back in the early 2000s it's not like it is now like it would take them months in order to put a profile together this is back in the early days of dna so the technology then is not what it is now so in, in, as far as i'm concerned i think that um there's a very strong likelihood that there was contamination now 
as we all know, none of the labs ever admit that kind of thing when no. there is some kind of potential Never. for that. And it's really, really hard from the defense side of it to prove it. If you've got a lab that's saying, no, you know, because they'll admit, well, mistakes can be made. But in this situation, one wasn't made. You know what I'm saying? So and that's exactly what happened with that particular scenario. And as I had told you yesterday, when you and I were kind of chatting offline and we were texting about, you know, what we we're going to talk about with this episode it just so happened when I was kind of digging into the, you know, everything that you had sent me, I, I realized that Theodore, uh, and I think it was Thesis, I think it's, I think he pronounced it, like we called him Ted, um, <laughs> or it's, Cassis. or it's these, Cassis, Cassis, thank you. Um, we had used him like six years ago for our Anthony Garcia case, and he was going to be our DNA guy. We ended up pivoting um, to a different guy, and that was part and parcel because Ted would not, you know, he just didn't agree with our estimation that we felt that we had stronger DNA as to another potential suspect in the case that we were working on. And he wasn't willing to say that, which to me tells me I can trust this guy in terms of what he's bringing to the table in terms of his ethics, you know, that he's not just a hired gun who's going to say, okay, well, you know, these guys paid me 10 grand. I'm going to say whatever I need to say on the stand. So in terms of him and, and the reason that I bring him up is in the appeal, and I don't know if I'm jumping way, way ahead of the game here, you know, in the appeal, he had very strong opinions about believing that the, the lab had cross-contaminated at least all, probably all three of them, you know, that somehow yes. that the, you know, that, that Gary's DNA profile got, accidentally was put on you know because like that's a different thing when you're talking about planting it like the planting it is a tougher sell for me having it just be a cross-contamination where it was done by accident is a much easier sell for me to believe you know i, I just don't think that i don't think it was planted no I, I think this me was either. a contamination in the lab which doesn't mean that let me back up I think that the, there was contamination in the lab. Does this mean that everything that was done in the lab at that time was contaminated? No, I, I believe that something happened that day where the three samples got mixed up together. And we talked about in the episode that if you touch something, your DNA can then be picked up by something else and transferred. It doesn't happen Absolutely. a lot, but it's a possibility. Absolutely. And it's frankly very, very easy. Transfer DNA is extremely, extremely common, actually, in terms of that, you know, they, they treat it like when, when you're in a DNA lab, um, you know, it, like they're in like full, full gear, you know, yes. I mean, they are they're, they're because it's such an easy occurrence. I mean, anything, if like a, a flake of dry skin falls off your, your arm, you know, and, and floats on to a sample, you've then got a contaminated sample where you're not going to have a single source profile. There's going to be additional DNA on there. So, and, and again, we have to look at the time frame when this happened. This is back early it's, 2000s, right? It pains me to say that the early 2000s were 20 years ago. That is a right. lifetime in terms of lifetime, science. lifetime, an absolute lifetime. It, like it, it's it's it leaps and bounds is the only way I can describe the you know the advancements in DNA technology and their ability to be able to you know just get samples from what would have been considered a completely degraded profile back in the day. They can get it off of damn near anything at this point. So yes. yeah, it, it's it's light years, light years ahead of where it was back then. What really concerned me was that they didn't find Jane's DNA on the hose. Now, these were not the hose that were around her neck. These are the hose that she was wearing. And notice that I'm not saying pantyhose because I said pantyhose 400 times in that episode and it's a terrible <laughs> word. <laughs> that's why I use stockings. Yes, yeah, stockings. Yeah, her stockings DNA was not on her own stockings that she was wearing. That seems impossible. It, like it, and I know Cassis in the appeal, like really, like that was one of his bigger points. Like the fact that none of her profile was found on stockings that she was wearing, yet they find two. And after the storage period. You right. know, so we've got we've got a, a, a murder that takes place in 1969 and we've got decades that pass. Yes. And and somehow her DNA, because because the argument that he was making, which was very, a very strong argument, 
if her DNA has degraded, which would have one would think would be much more prevalent than yes. two drops of sweat, then how is it that his two drops are the only two samples that are found on the entire on, on all of the stockings? And I'm assuming that they scan them pretty heavily for for samples. You know what I mean? It, it, right. That does not add up. That doesn't. It makes no, no sense. And, to me. and what he said was that the DNA from Leiterman was so easy to find on the stockings because it was freshly put there exactly. during a cross-contamination. Exactly. exactly. That, and, which makes perfect sense. It does. Yeah. It does. I mean, so and, it, it, but yeah, proving that, uh, how do you do that? But we need, to, we need to remember that in court, what the jury was given was that the prosecution's theory of the case is that Leiterman had a four-year-old Luruelis with him when he murdered Jane Mixer, and that four-year-old was at the scene and bleeding. That is the theory of the case that the prosecution presented to the jury. And everything Man, else aside, sell. yes, I mean, DNA aside, everything else aside, it's like, what? Right. It doesn't make any like that. No. That, that's, it could be one of the worst theories of a case that I've ever heard. And I've heard some bad ones. You, you know, it's like, I always talk about on my podcast, you know, where the state will develop tunnel vision when they lock into somebody, you know, sometimes it'll defy logic in terms of, you know, them just, you know, being so pinpoint on whatever suspect they land on. And then to the extent where they're not looking or thinking about any other possibility other than that person is the guy. So, you know, that's clearly what happened here. And, you know, like the fact that the jury heard that and still came back with the guilty verdict. And I think only three hours, like they did not have to deliberate long. They came back relatively quickly because, you know, the first hour of deliberations is them going back, figuring out who the four person's going to be in the jury. They take a straw poll. You know, they kind of get themselves situated. So I, I never count the first hour. Like when I'm waiting on a verdict in a case, I know that the first hour is just kind of like housekeeping back when, you know, the jury's first getting back there to start deliberating. Right. So you're, you're talking like two hours, um, what essentially was a 30 plus, you know, 30 year old case. And that's a that's a relatively quick, quick comeback. And that just shows you how powerful they felt that the DNA evidence was, I mean, to, to the exclusion of, well, that story that they told us doesn't make any sense. But the fact of the matter is that they found the guy's DNA on, on, on her stocking. So he has to be the guy, you know what I'm saying? It was like, they clearly, they didn't take anything else into consideration other than the fact that we've got a victim and we've got a guy whose DNA was on those, you know, on that victim's, you know, stockings and additionally the towel, you know, but the same type of sample. And it was March. I think you and I talked about this. Like, like the theory of him sweating, like in yeah. March in Michigan. Uh, I mean, in you're Michigan. from Chicago, so it's the same weather, same weather, you know, it's cold. like I, I can, it's cold. Like I can remember one St. Patty's day where we were going out to do what you do on St. Patty's day where it was like beautiful, like 70 and I'm, right. I'm 53, I'm 53. So like that's not many like most of the times it's miserable right and cold sleeting or you know it's 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 not nice out it's no. typically not warm and it's not the Especially kind of weather we're going to be exactly we know mixer was picked up late it was she was picked exactly. up between seven seven thirty and I what I'd like to I'm trying to look up on my phone and I have terrible connectivity in my recording closet is what year <laughs> the show CSI came out because I think that the jury was likely influenced by mm, a misguided belief that DNA is this infallible magic tool. Good thought. Yeah, you know, I bet you it's going to be right around the same time. Came out in 2000. Boom. So Nailed we're it. right at the Nailed heyday it. of the, the show CSI. It had been out for a couple yep. of years. And people believe that, that DNA evidence was infallible. It's quick. Yep. I've done interviews. Uh, I did an interview with Linda Doyle from Identifinders a few weeks ago. And she said, you know, when they f make a DNA identification through genetic genealogy, they don't hand it to the police and the police go running out of the precinct to arrest someone. The police look at that DNA match as part of the evidence they have. It's just right. one piece of the puzzle. It is not 
the piece. It is not a magic bullet. Exactly. That's so true. And um, so when we were doing the Gacy season and uh, I think we were probably about halfway through and they actually identified one of the, at that point, six remaining victims. Um, and it was a, a young, young man named Francis Alexander and, and Darren and I were like, oh, you know, we're in the middle of this podcast and I'm like, I'm getting into that press conference. So we jumped in the car and we went over. That's actually where I met Karen Binder of DNA Doe Project. And I like, I think I was like one of the first podcasters. I went up to her right after it because I was so blown away. Yes. About the the incredible possibilities of genealogical DNA. I was just stunned. Had her on the pod. I had her like like the next week I had to have her on. I'm like, you have to explain to the people what you guys do. And it's exactly what you said. In terms of when they came up with the match at that point, they turned it over to the police. And then what they do is the police then vet it to make right. sure, okay, so we we have the DNA, but now we have to make sure, can we place Francis Alexander in Chicago at this time where Gacy would have had access to, you know what I mean? So it yes. was like, like you said, it was, it was merely a piece of the puzzle. It wasn't like that, that as soon as they got it, they ran out and had the presser. Once they got it from DNA Doe. They then did the rest of the investigation in order to vet that this, in fact, was the guy that he he was here. He was in town that they they verified all that through like he had gotten a couple of parking tickets. So they, you know what I mean? So right. it was all these things that they could put together to show that he was there. So, yeah, it's amazing. But, yeah, you're right. And, and beyond that, like when you were talking to me about this, like. I, I got this more in, in terms of Ted Kessis, it wasn't as much. Um, you know, cause like Allison dealt with the DNA side of it, but when we pivoted from him, you know, and our, our, our next doctor, uh, who was brilliant and he basically said, look, I need all the data because, you know, the strength of the profile at this point, like I, you know, as much research as I've done on this case, I don't know what the strength of the profile was. I don't, I don't even know if right. it was a full or a partial profile, you know, like we're a partial as you'll have the. You'll have like a certain amount of the low, uh, the loci that are matches and, and others that if it wasn't a great sample that they couldn't match, you know, so that's where you'll get those numbers. Well, they'll say, you know, if it's it's one in three billion, you know, like, yeah, th that's definitely their DNA or, you know, ninety nine point nine 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 eight percent their DNA. And, you know, you'll have the situations where it's like a one in 12 where it's 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 not great evidence, you know, right. but like people hear that DNA match. But, you know, the language they use is very, it, it leads people, they say that they cannot exclude them. Right. You know, that that's the language that they use, that they cannot exclude the person as being a contributor to the DNA, which, you know, trying to explain it to lay people, even to me as a lawyer, it was, <laughs> you know, I'm not a scientist. I went to right. law school. So it's right. like, I'm always looking for experts that can break it down as if I were a three-year-old. And when it comes to math and science... Yeah, I'm basically a three-year-old so you know <laughs> hence the law school thing so you know but um yeah no I, I i'm with you it's uh there's a lot of variables and you and i both um actually tried pretty diligently to get a hold of uh oh we Gary's did old, his his attorney yeah um who handled his I, I believe the trial and the appeal right that he was was yeah, he, he was trial so. counsel yeah and uh we didn't have any luck. I mean, I had a million questions, as I'm, I'm sure you did as well. Oh, but. yeah. And then I, I like when I figured out yesterday that it was Cassis, and I'm like, because I, I was reading, I'm like, I, I yelled out to Allie. I'm like, who was the, the first DNA guy that we had? She's like, it was Ted Cassis. I'm like, holy shit. That's when I that's when I text you. I'm like, oh, and I, I, I sent him an email. I didn't, you know, it was kind of short notice. So I, I was hoping to be able to chat with them, because um, not about our old case, obviously, but about you know, this one, cause I would have loved to have gotten some input or had him on. That would have yes. been amazing to been that able to be grill amazing. him. Cause he was another one who, um, in terms of scientists was really able to, to break it down in, in a form and fashion to where I could understand what he was saying in terms of trying to determine like the strength of the sample, you know? Um, so yeah, but you know, next time we'll get, the, we'll get the next one, you know? Yes. Absolutely. So you and I have differing theories on who actually murdered Jane Mixer. 
we do. We, we do. I got, I got in a, I got in a bit of a rabbit hole yesterday. I, I was really trying to sell you on my guy. So let's talk about your guy. Like, so I, like, I, I think you're the more popular choice. Yeah. I think it was John Dorman Collins. I think that he hadn't killed for a while and shook things up a little bit. My only hesitation that keeps me from being fully committed to Collins being her killer is that I'm not sure how Collins would have known about the cemetery location because we talked about it in the episode that while the cemetery is between the freeway and Willow Run Airport, it's not easy to get to. It's sort of off back roads at the back of a subdivision. There's only a couple houses nearby. Like you'd really have to know the area to know where that cemetery was. So that's my only hesitation. But the presenting of the body definitely feels like him. You know, I think it's uh, the simplest explanation is the most likely. And I think it was uh, she was a Collins victim. And so there was like one part of that MO that didn't match up right with Collins. Like that was kind of a little bit different than like his other victims or his other, we yes. believe victims. So, and you know, for all you youngsters out there, just remember back in 1969, <laughs> they did not have things like we didn't even have map quest back then. So no. like if that, if that thought, like when, when Nina's saying, okay, well, you know, like you wouldn't have known where the, the cemetery is. Well, Back in the day, that was a thing because we didn't have GPS on our phones. You know, if like if if Nina called and said, hey, you know, why don't you come up to Michigan for a party? And she would have to give me like literally, OK, you're going to take a right on the street when you get into, t-, you know what I mean? So it yes. was like if you didn't know where things were, you didn't know where they were, you know, right. so like that, that's a legitimate thing. Um, yeah. So like my my guy is Ernest. Our Bishop Jr. Like he, he is a guy. That we was did convicted. talk about him in the episodes too. His name yeah. did come up. So I'm sorry yeah, to interrupt, I, but no, no. I'm, so I I started digging in on him, and you know he, he had uh, he actually like what happened with him. They actually found him um, insane. So uh, like, but I like up in Michigan, I wasn't clear on what the exact verdict here. Like here in Illinois, it would be not guilty by reason of insanity um, up there. I, I, I think that he was found guilty, but, but criminally insane. I think if at least on what I read, you know, so, but he was accused and convicted of killing um, a young lady named uh, Margaret Ann Phillips back in um, July of 69. So we're talking a, a few months, couple months after, um, yes. you know, Jane, Jane was, was unalived. So, and again, this guy used a twenty-two. He had a twenty-two caliber. Um, now, I did find an article uh, that was talking, because essentially, this guy had been in the car with another person who had told law enforcement that this guy threw uh, the gun into the uh, the Huron River. Okay, and so they they dragged it forever and ever and ever, and they finally found the gun, and then. Um, I read another thing where law enforcement came out flat out and said that the that the ballistics for mixer and and uh, the Baker weapon did not match. Okay, like so they they came out and said that I'm not buying it because from what I what what I know from Jane Mixer's cases, they found bullet fragments. Right. Is that what they They found bullet fragments? And, you know, if you know, if you follow true crime at all. You know that a twenty-two is a small caliber bullet, and they break up, especially yeah. when going through the skull. Or if they hit bone, the bullet falls apart. So you can't just you know have a side by side and be like, oh look, they match. Exactly. It's very unusual that you can do that with a twenty-two because it is a smaller caliber and it bounces around. Not to be gross, I, but it bounces around yeah, in the head. It, it does, and you know when it hits the you know the the skull. Um, you know, the skull bones are pretty durable, um, in general. So, you know, that's going to cause, you know, that's going to cause the, the bullet to fragment like that. And then, you know, when I looked at this weapon, I found a picture of like from 69, like in, a, in the archives, <laughs> the 20, this 22, like literally fit in the palm of oh, it was the person's tiny. hand holding. It was super tiny. Like it looked like one of those little like green or, you know, yellow squirt guns that we used to have, yes. like the really small ones back when we were a kid. It was like that size. So, you know, for them to, 
you know, kind of decide at that point, you know, Collins was in the mix. You had, so you had the Baker thing and you had, uh, you know, the Collins thing kind of like all going on at the same time. And, you know, they, they just, for whatever reason, they did not like, you know, but Baker had some stuff going on. Like he was a convicted rapist. I know that Mixer wasn't Bishop. sexually assaulted. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, Bishop wasn't. Thank you. Did I? Was it what? Was you were saying Baker. Baker hold on. Yeah. No, that's okay. Bishop. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. You know, I, I think that what was going on is that, you know, you have a guy that has a history in terms of a criminal history. He had a rape charge he was convicted of. So, you know, he had some sexual assault and some violent, some violence in his past. So in terms of that, it's a fit. I know it doesn't fit in the sense that Jane, you know, there was no sexual assault as to her person. But, you know, when you kind of look at just the fact that there was a 22 in play, I don't think that ballistically they could have been able to exclude that. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that his victim went to University of of Michigan as well. So he was kind of familiar with the area, you know, Um, know, there's a lot of pieces that fit there. You had an interesting theory when we were texting yesterday. Um, He knew Margaret Phillips through her work as a social work student at the University of Michigan, and you believe that he could have also known Jane Mixer. Can you elaborate on that? Well, you know, so not knowing as much as I would love to about um, kind of Jane's experience at University of Michigan Law School, you know, like I, I know that when I was in law school, I was in a legal clinic and, you know, basically what we would do is we'd give free legal advice to, ind- you know, indigent people. And it turns out, you know, my concept is like this guy had some legal issues, you know, probably on and off. It may not have been something as big as, you know, like a, a a high felony, but he could have had anything going on to where he could have gone to the legal clinic. And if Jane was working at the clinic, they then make a connection there. He gets eyes on her and, you know, it kind of rolls from there, you know, in terms of that connection. So, I mean, it's possible, like if I was representing him back in 69, in terms of like, or if I'm the prosecutor back in 69, I'm looking into that angle to see if I can make the connection. But you know, in terms of them just kind of like, I, I don't know, you know, because it's like, you know, they wanted to close the mixer case, right? You know, and they just yeah. wouldn't like, I, I respect the fact that they did, didn't just throw it on to Collins and they didn't just throw it on to um, Bishop. You know, it was like one of those things where it seems like either one of them, they probably could have sold the narrative just in terms of kind of they had similar MOs and they both had very similar um and they they had the opportunity in in the sense that they were in the area you know what i mean so if jane mixer saw him she would not she would have not been uncomfortable assuming that she knew him from the legal clinic if she was out and saw him right she might not think twice about it exactly because that that was what that was one of your, like, when I was throwing my theory at you, you came back with like, well, you know, like it, it was 69, you know, the sad reality of that time frame is, you know, you, if you've got a, a young white woman, like she might not be so inclined to get in the, in, into a vehicle with a black man back in 69. And unfortunately, I think that was the reality of the mentality yeah. back then. So, um, you know, that, that did, that's what got me thinking, okay, well, you're right. Um, but let's try to figure out if there's a way that there would have been some kind of meeting um, to where her comfort level would rise to the, you know, to the point where she'd say, okay, yeah, that's fine. You know, and like, I, I don't know anything about Jane. She might've been like, you know, like a, an advanced thinking person, you know, she might've been somebody who didn't judge people back then. Like we, we don't know. I mean, it's hard to say, but I think that there's, um, there's a distinct possibility that he's the guy (laughs) like I just, you know, it's one of those things where it's a shame that I think that this cross contamination actually happened because I'm not so sure that justice has occurred for her, you know, in terms of the right person being, you know, convicted for the crime. I mean, it's, it's hard to know. It's interesting though. I want to bring up how hard this is on her family. Like I really hesitated to do, the Jane Mixer episode 
because, you know, I fear that her family is going to listen to it. And I don't know how comfortable they are with Leiterman's conviction and how comfortable they are with the evidence. And I spoke a little bit about her father during the episode that he was, I believe, in his 90s and just, you know, just wanted them to get the right guy. He was willing to go through the trial if it was the right guy. And I, you know, this, we both know Haley, my researcher, and it was Haley who brought this to my attention and went, you know, I don't think Leiterman did it because when I initially looked to cover Jane Mixer's case, I was under the impression that Leiterman was guilty. And the more I looked at the evidence and the more I read and the more familiar I became and, you know, going through what Haley sent us was like, wait, I not so sure that he's the guy anymore yeah and that's hard it is hard and like from the victim's family's perspective it's like i'm always saying it on the pod i'm like you want competent lawyers on both sides you want all the evidence to be completely vetted at trial because that's the only time that you're going to be able to walk away from a case with as close as we're going to get in terms of feeling confident that they've got the right person, because right. as you and I both know, you know, like typically there's only two people that are involved, especially in like in an in a, in a unaliving where, you know, there's not any kind of witnesses, you know, there's only two people that really know the truth. And what you're dealing with with a trial is you're dealing with a state that has a theory on what happened. And it's only that. It can't be anything else because they weren't there. So they have a theory of how the case developed. And it's the same with the defense, you know, so you want you want really good lawyers on both sides because it's it's as close as we can get to being able to determine, OK, this is the right guy. And then, you know, when you talk about Jane's case, like the family. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly how I'd be. You know, it's like, oh, 30 years have passed. You're kind of pinning on this guy who, for all intents and purposes, you know, seemed like a pretty decent guy aside from that one kind of horrific blight on his record, yes. which really does cast him in a different light. You know, it does. that's why I was saying if, if you can pull that away, which I don't know if you can, like I read something that, you know, he was trying to say that, that they weren't his pictures and that he found them or something of that uh, nature, you know, but the problem, it was in his bedroom, on his <laughs> you know, bed. it's like, on yeah. his bed, you know, so it's like, you know, that just gives you that, that that icky feeling in your stomach where, you know, cause if that did not exist, like I would a hundred percent think that they got the wrong guy, like a hundred percent, you know, but the fact that that does exist and he, you know, we, we've all got, you know, we've all got skeletons in our closet. I mean, some are, most of us are, they're, they're not as uh, vile as that. Right. <laughs> but, you know, we've all got secrets. I don't know. Like, it, just like you said, when I started kind of digging into it, and you're like, because this is an interesting case. And, uh, and, you know, and then when Haley sent all of the, the, you know, just the articles in the background, I was like, wow, yeah, this is, this doesn't, this doesn't add up. And it, and it harkens back to what you were saying. It's just the fact that they incorporated Rulis into it and they had to do it, I guess, because they were trying to figure out how to explain, because they couldn't say it was cross-contamination. Because no. if they said, it, you know, they, they, they just couldn't, obviously, they must have had many, many conversations in the prosecutor's office about how do we handle the fact that, you know, we've got this Rulis's DNA who was a four-year-old kid at yeah. the time, a toddler. Bleeding toddler. A, bleeding toddler at night who has no connection with Leiterman at all. You know, how do we explain that he's there or how do we explain that the, you know, the blood is there? One of the two has to happen. We either have to go with the kind of crazy theory that somehow he was with Gary Leiterman. <laughs> At the time that he did this, or we have to we have to fess up that there was cross contamination at the lab, and if you do that, that destroys it destroys everything. You know, I mean, the, it does. the defense is just going to you know attack that nonstop. They're going to be like, you can't trust it, and you can't. You know, like we're saying, you can't trust it now, even though there was a conviction on it, because you can't trust it. I mean, clearly something went down in the lab. I don't believe in coincidences like that where you no. got. You know, three things like just kind of the perfect storm. And, and like you, you were talking about earlier, like that, that like all it would have taken is, and I don't know that they knew back then in terms of like the early days of DNA, just how easy it was to transfer DNA. You right. Know, if you've got a, if you've got a lab tech in there, that's 
I don't think touch DNA was a thing in 2003, 100%. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely wasn't. So, like, they, they may have very well have, like, I mean, just say, for instance, somebody's got the, the swab, all right, because they would have done the swab. Yes. Right? Like, for, for yeah, anybody the in, swab. in jail. Yeah, so, the, yeah, the buckle swab gets done. And, and then, say, for instance, some sloppy tech just puts it on the desk. Yep. Or drops it. Or drops it or whatever the case may be. And then the pantyhose come out, you know, and they get they get laid down, you know, like they're it's it's just in terms of the mindset back then, in terms of what they knew, in terms of the ability for DNA to be able to transfer that. Like, I I don't know. It it has to be contamination. There's no other reasonable explanation that I I can glom on to. You know, like the the rulest thing is the thing that makes it because when you first told me about it, I'm like, oh, well, I'm like, you know, the YSTR of Rulis's father, you know, maybe it was Rulis's dad was with him or maybe he was the guy. And then I started looking into Rulis's history and I'm like, like, I, I mean, it, it's it's somewhat prophetic in terms of like when you look at what went on with Rulis and his mother. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, yeah, he was four, but. He it seems like he tortured his mother pretty well until it ended up that she died and it seemed extremely homicidal to me, her death. Well, and she went out a window at one point and survived. Right. I mean right. he was three I, stories. Yeah. I he was not He was a he was right. He was a seriously disturbed person. Yeah, and then so like I my my whole theory was crushed when I think I I read we didn't know the date but it said that his father had passed when he was um small you know, pretty young yeah, yeah he was small I mean which I guess in theory could still work but you know because like the YSTR strand for him and his dad would be the exact same you know what I mean so but again we don't know what the you know what the what the profile was we don't know if it was a pro like you need all the data. Right. In order to be, and then you need somebody who knows what they're talking about to look at it and right. say, yeah, this is a problem, you know. But, um, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting. I, I really wish we could have gotten his, his old lawyer on. Me too. Like, you know, he would have had some, some details maybe that, that we haven't been able to get in terms of Haley and her amazing research, like scouring online, you know. Um, yeah. It's one of, it's one of those cases that, you know, just like we just really don't know, which is really like a lot of cases. It is. You know, it is. So I think that wraps it up for today, Bob. Are I, we done? I think we are. Okay. I was going right. to say, I really appreciate you coming on and having this conversation with me and bringing your perspective, your unique perspective as a defense attorney. And can you tell listeners where they can find you? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks, Nina. I've been dying to do something with you since I met you. You're one of my one of my OG podcast <laughs> homies. Like That's you, right. You are. Like, I adore you. Um, like, without you and, and Charlie, like, in the beginning, it would have been a lot tougher because you, you were kind uh, right from the get. And I always wanted to, to let you know how much I appreciated that oh, when I was first pleasure. starting out. Because, I mean, you did. You You would reach out and give me tips and, you know tried to clue me in on things and it, it's beyond appreciated. So thank you very much. So I've been very, very uh, excited about doing this with you. So yeah, uh, my pod is a little pod called defense diaries. It is serialized. Well, actually we have a little bit of both these days. So the, the, you know, we've got the serialized portion and the first season was um, John Wayne Gacy. My father was his defense attorney and my dad had given me all his taped interviews with that so we put together a, a little podcast that we're pretty proud of. Um, and, you know, if you're if you're not into serial killers or, you know, the thought of Gacy is repugnant to you as it should be, um, just know that it, it's about the victims. Our pod is about the victims, the the investigation, the arrest yes. and the trial. It's excellent. Thank you. You do hear that you hear Gacy talk, but from a historical perspective, I thought that that was important and it was unusual that it was a, his defense attorney talking to him pre-trial. So they're interesting, but yeah, it's, we tried not to focus on, on the creep too much, which is what we call Gacy. Um, and then the second season is a case that I handled in Omaha, just a brutal, horrifying case. Um, but the trial was unbelievable. Um, and it makes for a, a pretty interesting story. And then we've got the docket where we're handling, um, 
you know, current events and breaking news type stuff. So you've done some um, great stuff on the docket with the Idaho murders. It's been absolutely fascinating following your work on that. I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, it was driving me nuts. You know, it's like when you're doing serialized and, and you're dealing with cases, one that was 43 years old and the other one that was, you know, eight, eight years old, even though it's interesting because I, it's like they're personal for me. Now, these seasons are obscenely long. Like, 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 I think only Josh and maybe Mandy Matney, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's like Gacy went 36 episodes. Uh, You know, there's a lot there and they're densely packed. It's, it's, you know, I, I am not uh, one to, there's not much frivolity in there. I'm really trying to give like a lot of information, but making it interesting at the same time, but they're long and it's kind of the same with, with Garcia. Like it's, it's going to end up going longer. But I like it's not just me talking about a case. It's me talking about a case that had an impact on my life in massive ways, you know, so it's kind of like a a, like moving forward. My seasons will be more in in line with what everybody else does. But, yeah, those two are definitely very, very deep dives, primarily because, um, you know, of the personal side of it. But and they, you know, we're everywhere you get your pods. We're available. Um, You know, we we love getting people that listen and you know one of the big things that we try to show is that there's two sides of the criminal justice system in terms of in that courtroom and you've got the prosecutor and the defense attorney and i've been making it a mission to try to get people to understand that defense attorneys aren't all bottom feeder scumbags that we play an extremely important role you do in the criminal justice system and and i i've been successful with that you know not beating it over people's heads but just trying to explain how the criminal justice system works and where the defense attorney fits in that role and how important they are to all of our rights because essentially you have a government entity uh, entity that is trying to prosecute and arrest us and if you don't have a defense attorney out there filing the motions to suppress if the cops are violating you know constitutional rights then there's no one to stop them from doing that on everyone. And that becomes a real problem for those of us that aren't necessarily criminals. You know, if they, you pull, you get pulled over and there's no lawyers out there filing motions to suppress then they think they can search our homes and our houses or our, I'm sorry, our homes and our cars. And it's, you know, it's just, a, it's a slippery slope. So, um, you know, I, I try to impress that upon people in addition to the fact that, you know, we need to hear all the evidence before we make, judgments on people's guilt it's like you know when we hear like in 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 nina like i i've been practicing for 20 plus years and i've never heard of the situation where in the last since the the delphi probable cause affidavit dropped and then the idaho four probable cause affidavit dropped i've never seen anybody talk about probable cause affidavits like this ever like like i have in the last six months with those two affidavits that came out it was just mind blowing. And I just kept trying to tell people, I'm like, look, this is the state's theory. This is how they're interpreting the evidence. This right. doesn't, this is, it hasn't been vetted. So everyone needs to just take a breath. Yep. Calm know, down. And calm get down. Get back to center. Yeah. Get back to center. Let's not start accusing people. Let's not convict people on evidence that hasn't been vetted yet. Let's just take a breath and chill. And because we'll get there, you know, but you need both sides. And again, it always goes back to the victims. You know, it goes back to them and their families. We want to get it right. And the we want a fair trial. Right, we have to have one because if it's not a fair trial, you got to do it and again. And, and God, could you imagine being a, a victim's family having to go through that again? Yeah. You know, it, it's like, because like people keep asking me, like, do you, do you think that they'll offer, uh, the the Idaho four defendant and I never say his name like I've made a decision I won't say it then either <laughs> no I just you know like that guy when I looked at him and it was a little bit going against what I'm saying with respect to you know he like he's got the look and the feel if he is the guy that he's relishing this you know he just he gives me that vibe um is kind of a sociopath and I've dealt with them personally he throws off that vibe to me and I don't want to give him what I think that he might want, which might, you know, was notoriety from the case. So I've been and it's harder. It's harder not to say his name than to, you know, just call him the defendant all the time. And, you know, so it, it's challenging. It really is to not use his name, but um, you know, kind of the way that I, I, I look at that, that case is like, they've got pretty strong evidence on its face. 
you know, yes. I mean that DNA on the sheath, but we don't know what the profile's like. Right. You know, we just don't. And it's like when you start picking apart that affidavit, that timeline that they kind of like pigeonholed themselves in with knowing he's back in the car at 420. Yeah, and, but you and I talked about that timeline. We texted about yeah, it. And I did. told you, walk outside your house like you just parked your car. And then, I did it too. Yeah. Walk into the house, <laughs> hit four rooms, spend two minutes in each room. And we yeah. found out it's doable. It's doable. It's ugly, but it's doable. It is. It's like, it's like perfect, perfect world doable. But then you add in the factor that he left the sheath. It makes it make more sense. You know what I'm saying? Like he, it's not the perfect crime in the sense that he left some smoking gun evidence on Maddie's bed. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So like we're, if he had taken a little more time, maybe he doesn't leave the sheath, you know, but the, the biggest problem, and I'm just telling you right now, what is going to be the issue is these kids that were in that house for hours before law enforcement got there. It, like you heard it here. And I am telling you when that trial comes, it is going to be an issue. They were like, what, what I am hearing is that they were in in that house that they started calling like friends over early and that the kids were in that house for hours, yeah. not like the hours in that crime scene. Um, it's going to become a, a massive issue at trial because it then creates the possibilities that anything could have happened Yeah, in terms of that sheath and why is it there? I mean, it's it's going to be a scary trial in, in a lot of ways. Um, oh, but like the original point, and then I'm done. You know, <laughs> people people were asking, are they going to you know offer this guy you know life in lieu of you know the death penalty, which it is a death penalty state. You know, and, and a lot of times that goes back really to the the victims' families. You know, like they'll look at the strength of the case. You know, the prosecutor, and they'll say, well, we have a very strong case. We feel very very strong about this case. We think we're going to get the conviction. If it, if it turns out that it gets more iffy because the, the, the prosecutor is always going to the family and saying, what do you want to see happen? You know, do you want us to go for the execution or we can avoid the nightmare of you having to sit through a two month trial, right? That's going to go through every gruesome detail of your kids' lives and how they came to an end. And we just have this guy serve the rest of his life in prison, which me personally think is much, much worse than death penalty. Agree. There's no, there's nothing worse than spending your life in a cage, period. Like every every little thing that we take for granted in our lives, you no longer have access to. And like, think about that. And I'm talking forever. That's rough. Like death penalty, me kind of let him off the hook, to be honest with you. You know, like I know if I was, you know, some kind of horrific killer, I would want the death penalty. I would not want to spend my life in a cage. That's for sure. So, but that, that's just me. So they'll, they'll go to them and they'll ask the family what they're, you know, what they want, you know, what the, what they really want. And it's going to be interesting to see, you know, and, and depending on how the defense attacks and what sense the prosecutors get, because like, no matter how good the evidence seems on its forefront, if you talk to any prosecutor, or any defense attorney, you don't know how it's going to turn out. You never right. know what a jury is going to do. You just right. don't. Since we're off on this tangent, at this point, we've basically wrapped up our discussion of the Mixer murder. But I have some questions for Bob, who is a criminal defense attorney, about the Moscow murders from Idaho. And for the rest of this episode, that's what we'll be talking about. So if you're interested in learning a little bit more, stay tuned. I thought yes. this would be a good question for you to address because I'm sure some of the listeners are following the Moscow murders and have this question too. His new criminal defense attorney, and my dad was a criminal defense attorney, so I totally get the bad rap, the issues they mm -hmm. face, all that good stuff. But the defendant's criminal defense attorney is formerly associated with one of the victim's families. How is this going to play out? I, that's a conflict of interest. So is that what your opinion is? I think it's a you conflict of interest. I mean, that's how okay, I so. that's how I'm seeing it as a lay person, that it's going to come up at trial, it's going to come up at appeal, that he sh that this female attorney should not have been allowed to defend him. Give me your professional opinion, please. Okay, so um so happy you asked that question. So I I, I actually did an amazing three minute TikTok on my TikTok. I've I've started doing TikTok. What's your TikTok? 
It is uh, at Defense Diaries podcast. I do like I do three minutes, so it, it's where I'm. You know, I'm not doing trends. I'm actually talking about cases, and so. Um, and it was driving me nuts about this this conflict of interest because on Twitter everyone was losing their mind. It's conflict. Of, so here here's the way it works. And and show the short answer is on its face, what we know right now, no, it's not a conflict. It's not about whether or not there is a connection between two people in terms of clients. Okay. What what matters is if there is knowledge, because it's about what the lawyer knows. So when ah. you're talking about a conflict of interest, it is the lawyer's duty, the lawyer's responsibility, because only the lawyer knows what the lawyer knows, meaning from each of those two people. Right. Okay. So on its face, and, and there's two rules in Idaho. You've got uh, the professional rules of, or the rules of professional conduct out there. You've got 1.7, which is conflict of interest as to current clients. Now, the way that this played out, and again, you're talking about Idaho, you're talking about only 13 death penalty certified attorneys out there. Wow. There's not a lot of them. She was closest in proximity and she's an experienced trial lawyer. She got she got the gig, okay? Again, we want him to have a fair trial, minimize 100%. pain for the families. 100%. So when you look at it, on its face. So she says, okay, I know she realized immediately that Kara um, was one of her clients. Okay. That's, that's Anna's mom. Okay. So she realized it. So when she gets appointed on the 5th of January to uh, the defendant's case, at that point, she knows that she's got to withdraw from Kara's case. So in the morning she goes in on the 5th withdraws from Kara's case, which was a, a drug possession case, okay? And and then later that day, and I think that that hearing took place, and, and that explains why it was later in the day. Like, if, if like, I believe that that hearing took place at 11. So he, she went in, and, so, and the judge knows, and the prosecution, everyone knows. This wasn't like a mystery. She, she came out and said, okay, I've, I've got a potential conflict here. Um, you know, I represent Kara, and I also, you guys are going to appoint me to this. I'm going to withdraw from her case. It was early in her case. She hadn't okay. been representing him, but she had been arrested on um, November, I think it was six days after the murder. So she was arrested on November 19th on these two drug possession charge cases. And, and like, I think it was a $50,000 bond. So that tells me it was more than, you know, a little bit of, of and I believe that it was meth. Okay. So it was like a relatively big big-ish boss not a huge boss but she had some grams she had a little bit of weight okay so and it, and it looks like that that um ann taylor had represented her in the past as well on some other other cases so she goes in on the fifth drops that case okay withdraws they put it in she gets appointed a new public defender and then at 11 or eleven thirty, she enters her appearance on on the, the idaho four case and at that point 1.7, which deals with conflict of interest with current clients, no longer applies. Okay. So what we're talking about at that, but so she never represented the two people at the same time. Now that may okay. seem like a semantics, but it's not. Okay. Because what then you have to look at as 1.9, which is conflict of interest with uh, past clients. Okay. So she's got a current client. She's got a past client. Now, on its face, it, it seems disgusting. It's like, like, and I and I say this in my TikTok video. I'm like, look, if my if one of my children was murdered, and I had the attorney that had helped me in a criminal case that I had, and it turns out that they are now representing the person that it is accused of killing my kid, I'd be out of my mind. I'd be yeah. like, I, like, but it's not about that. The law is not about feelings. It's not about emotions. It's about the knowledge that she has. So there is one circumstance where she would have a conflict. And, and I talk about it because on its face, there's no conflict like unless, because what the rule is, is she has to have some kind of knowledge that would prohibit her from not being able to defend the Idaho four suspect in the way that she has to do it. There has to be, like a, in, in the example that I give is say, for instance, when she went in uh, initially, when I'm talking, she being uh, Kara went into Ann Taylor's office after she picked up the charges and Ann says, so well, tell me what's going on. What happened? And she says, well, you know, um, and she fesses up some kind of story and says, look, you know, I, 
I've got kind of a side hustle going on with my kid. Okay. So like I basically am supplying my kid with dope, whatever the case may be, whatever it may be. And she has ragers and it, whether it's Molly, MDMA, whatever the case may be. And my kid's selling it and, you know, we split it. Like, so, so say she tells, and, and we have, remember there's attorney client privilege. Okay. So, Ann Taylor can never bring that up. Even if she, so say that happens. Now this is completely hypothetical. This is right. not anything that I know. So I don't right. want anyone saying this is a total hypothetical, but it's not a crazy one. Okay. So you've got that situation that takes place. Okay. So you've got, Anne has this knowledge. She has attorney client privilege and that, that extends past if she's a, a, a current or former client, you have that privilege with your lawyer, your lawyer, if they're not your lawyer anymore, cannot run and tell your secrets. It's a massive violation of their ethical duty. They can't do it. So, so then say after she has this information that she gets, she doesn't really think anything of it at the time other than, you know, well, it's kind of shitty parenting, but you know, she goes, sure. Talks, talks to the, the defendant in the Idaho four case. And he's like, look, he's like, like, he's, I, I was at the house, you know, I, like I'm like, I, I was trying to score because we know, that like some substantiated stuff has come out that he he had a drug problem so i know he was he had a heroin issue so like if i'm a crafty defense attorney and i've got and he says look and and we've got so she's got knowledge that you know because the house was known as a rager house it was a party house like that's like all of us know that if if something like that was going on and ann taylor has knowledge of that and that that fits in with a potential defense that this guy yeah i I went over the house xana was up which we know that she was because she was on her tiktok right you know what i'm saying and and he's like i was going to score and that's you know that's who i score from typically so and it's four in the morning it's like this is college that's not a crazy hour for kids to still be partying and it's definitely not a crazy hour for addicts to be searching right. for drugs. Um, you know, so say say he says I, I was over there. I went in. I you know she she typically leaves the slider open for me. I went up to the back, which explains his car being there, which explains him turning off his phone, kind of. Uh, you know, I went in. I walk in, and everyone's dead, and I panic and I leave. I run out and I don't call law enforcement because they're going to think I did it. You know, which explain. So at this point, Ann Taylor has what could be a viable defense. And it, it just is, you know, because then you're going to add in. You've got these, you know, the the SIGs that were over there in the morning for three hours, contaminating the hell out of that crime scene. And, and Ann Taylor is going to be in a position where she has then she has a conflict because she right. has information that she knows from Ann Taylor that she cannot use. It's going to prohibit her from being able to do her job on the defendant for the Idaho four case because she wouldn't be able to bring out that information up because of privilege. So like, that's a real conflict. Like that this concept that there's a connection between two, unless there's information that prohibits her from being able to do her job, you know, that creates an adverse, uh, uh, some kind of adverse issue where she's not able to do what she needs to do based on the information she has, from the other client that's where the conflict arises so that makes sense yeah i mean there could be there could be i mean if, if something like that took place and the way that that's going to get like like so at this point ann taylor is saying i don't have that conflict like we all like we can take like that's what happened because it's the lawyer's responsibility because again no one knows what the lawyer knows like a judge can't say well i think it seems like a con well the judge doesn't know like the the best example for a conflict is is like Nina, if you and Chris were calling it a day and you're like, well, I'm going to go talk to every good lawyer in the entire in the entire area. So he can't get them like you can do that because you're giving any potential lawyers information that if they were hired, they could then use against you, you know, in in representing your husband in the divorce. You know what I'm saying? So like that, it's all about the information that you get. And that's what creates the conflict. So, yeah, I mean, at this point, no, but I and. If if Kara goes to the prosecutor and says, "Okay, I told her X, Y, and Z," she knows this. At that point, the prosecutor could file a motion to seek to have her removed, and then Kara would have the ability to waive her privilege. Okay, and 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 basically 
talk about the privileged information that she gave to Ann Taylor. That's the only way it can get done to get her removed. Like if she said, look, I gave her this information and they would probably do that because of the gag order. Like we wouldn't get to hear it. They'd probably do it in camera. It makes sense, though, that Idaho only has 13 death penalty certified or practiced lawyers. Slim pickings. And the state is so... It's a large state. It's spread out with a small population, and she is the closest. So from a very practical standpoint, she's the best choice to represent him. 100%. Okay. And at this point, there's no conflict. I Like, I know, the like, on its face, I know it, like, makes people's skin crawl, just the concept of it. The concept of this guy represented, you know, a victim's mother. As a matter of fact, I think he represented, like, uh mogan's father too like there's a couple of the parents that he that she's represented in the past now those are older cases but again if there is no nexus if there's no connection between the two cases like her drug case and his his homicide case there is no conflict there has to be like a nexus there has to be a connection between those two cases that's prohibiting her from being able to do her job that's what the whole point of it is you know because it's really it's really his issue Right. More than it is hers. Right. Because he's the one who potentially could have, you know, his defense compromised by whatever she knows and, you know, cannot disclose at that point. If like, And I'm assuming that that did not take place in terms of her having that kind of information because she would have to come forward and say, yeah, I know. Like, I, I know things like I can't I can't represent them because I know, I know things that I won't be able to use. So, well, I think we were concerned initially that, it, you know, Moscow, Idaho is a small town. It's a college town. They don't see a lot of murders. There was some initial concern that they might not be up to the challenge of handling this case. But right. I think that they've proved themselves. And I think that They've done a really good job so far, and I think that they will be exceptionally careful to make sure that the defendant is aware of any potential conflict, which we don't think there is. Absolutely. So that they're going into the trial with all their T's crossed and their I's dotted and everything um, you know, above board. hundred percent. The first thing Ann Taylor did is she went to you know, to the defendant and said, Look, you know, I represented the mother. Do you have it? Like she she told him immediately immediately like that that there was like he is because that that concern with like if they go for because i i was seeing that a lot online that people were like oh well they'll be able to no it's going to be a knowing waiver like from him it's going to be a knowing waiver that he understands that she represented you know kara zana's mother at some point in the past and that he he has complete knowledge of it like he's not going to be able to bring that up on appeal later that's not going to be an okay. issue because it's going to be it's going to be waived completely so that that's an on issue and, and you're exactly right you know, like it was amazing. Like I, I felt so happy for law enforcement when they were sitting in that press conference because all of the shit that people were talking about them, everybody, oh yeah, including the parents of the victims. You're like, these guys are incompetent. And then you know they just came in ringing the bell. You know, and then when like I kept telling people, I'm like, okay, compare the Richard Allen affidavit with this guy's affidavit. There's there's a crepe paper thin super thin case with with Allen and Delphi and then you've got what appears to be a very strong case like that's the difference in in you know the affidavits and like because people were getting upset about the Richard Allen affidavit I'm like look it's just this guy admitted that he was on the bridge like the, the, that information was there for five years that got buried right. you know by incompetence you know I mean that that's a you know you've got an unspent bullet that did not go through a chamber with ballistics that are basically seen as junk science these days yeah. you know it's like i'm like it's not it's not strong i'm like you know we need to hope if he is the guy that they get all of their evidence post arrest which is frankly when most of the the evidence comes in you know it's like people don't understand that they think that when an arrest happens the investigation stops that's the exact opposite of what happens that's really when the investigation into the defendant starts because right. they have it all the access up. totally. Cause they have access to the cars, homes, computer, all that stuff. When, when dudes in custody, it's all fair game for law enforcement. So that's where they get a ton of the evidence anyway. So, you know, I was just saying on Allen, they're going to need more because yes. that, that, that PCA is not enough. And people are like, they're holding back. I'm like, no, that is like, that's the other thing. Don't get me started on that. They don't hold back <laughs> strong evidence in a PCA. No. It's not what they do. They hold back bad evidence that doesn't work for them. Or, you know, if there's a potential additional suspect, they'll hold that back. 
in terms of not releasing it to to clue the other guy in. But, you know, in terms of the strongest case that they have at that point, because it's the state's first opportunity to lay out their case where it's unrefuted. You know, they, they start building the bias in the jury immediately. It's a huge advantage for the state. And they always take it, you know, every opportunity to, to use it, you know. So, so yeah, no conflict, not in my estimation, um, And it, which is why there hasn't been, you know, with all the outrage, I, I completely agree. I think Idaho has been crushing this thing. They have. You know, I'm that, impressed. Yeah, that gag order had to go as much as we didn't want it. In order for the administration of justice to happen properly, it had to happen, you know, yeah. so. Um, yeah, I've, I've been real impressed with them, too, from law enforcement up. So, yeah, I, I have every faith that they'll handle it correctly. So, well, Bob, thank you. I, thank you. You started out talking about Janie. I love the, the conversation we had about Moscow and a little bit about the Delphi. And again, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, hope we can do this again soon. And uh, I'm hoping to join you in Albuquerque in March, too. Ooh, so I'm hoping I get to see your face live and in person. So thank you so much, Nina. You are the best. And uh, I really, really love this. And uh, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Already Gone. We will be back with a narrative episode on February 15th. As always, I appreciate you listening and please be safe. <laughs>